be seated. Good to see everyone here this morning. How are y'all doing? You look great, especially you, Dean. Look well rested and tanned. But if you got your Bibles, go ahead and uh, make your way to John 7. We're going to be in uh, John 7, starting in verse 37. We're going to get there rather quickly. Um, we're in week 21 of our Gospel of John study. Pastor Micah told me that last week because I lost count. Um, our first service, excuse me. Um, Pastor Micah left us off with Jesus uh, being attempted to be arrested by temple officers, um, but he could not be arrested because it was not yet his time. In our time together, we're going to see our Lord and Savior talk about thirsty people finding drink in him. We're going to witness people and how they get to Jesus half correctly, or in the real sense, completely wrong. And we're going to see how Jesus causes division. And it's interesting that people still try to talk about Jesus incorrectly for 2,000 years, and lost people still act like lost people because of their lack of understanding about Jesus. If only we had a Bible to teach them. But before we jump into the meaning of all that, we're going to read the verses together. We've got a lot to get through in a short time to get there. So if you're able, I would ask that you stand in reverence to the reading of God's word. And starting in verse 37, this is the word of the Lord. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of the, his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When he heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The, officer, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one has ever spoken like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our, law, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, may you be glorified in this time period, Lord. May we see our need for you. May we see that you are living water and the only thing that can quench our souls is you and you alone, Lord. If there's anyone in here who is struggling with understanding who you are, may they come to rightly know who you are. Lord, may we be obedient in all things. May you be glorified. May you be honored. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We need you more than anything. Amen. You may be seated. So these set of verses start off with, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So this is either the seventh or the eighth day of the feast. Not really important, but John makes it clear that in some regard, in some way, it was a great day. What he is trying to imply 
is that it was probably the most well-attended day of the feast. For the Jews knew it was a great day. In any event, unknown to those Jews, it was a great day because, in fact, the greatest day. Because the greatest person who would ever issue the greatest invitation ever offered it to sinful men. See, Jesus would proclaim to them the good news, the gospel of their salvation. Unfortunately, this isn't a situation like the Godfather. Jesus isn't going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Because this was, and still is to this day, an offer that can be refused by anyone who has no ears to hear and no heart to receive what Jesus is offering. See, and people are going to refuse the good news of the gospel then, and they're going to refuse it today. And on the last day of the Festival of Shelters, we get this amazing invitation to the people from the Lord. The Festival of Shelters, in case you're wondering, is a remembrance of a time in Israel's history when they were stuck in the desert. If you're in the desert, you get thirsty. If you get thirsty, you're in trouble. You're dying. That's why we see so many miracles in the, de- in the desert that involve water. They refused to take the land of milk and honey because they were scared. And God sent them into the desert for 40 years because of their disobedience. So they had to rely on God for water. All right? We're Floridians. We're still in hurricane season if you didn't recognize it. I know some of y'all have pumpkins up already and your Uggs are out and your pumpkin spice everything. But we still got a couple of tropical storms out there. In case you didn't know. Um, and what happens when Floridians think a hurricane is actually going to hit is we, we do one of two things. One, we, we end up throwing a hurricane party because it always turns. And which as a teacher, uh, I'm a little bummed out because it's been a few years since we've gotten a couple of extra days off of school. And I'm not talking like a Katrina situation. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But One of the many storms meteorologists get us all hyped for, and then it turns like it always does, and we've got to go, like, pick up the one lawn chair in the backyard when it passes. I'm talking about one of those. Okay. What ends up happening is we end up leaving because for some reason we always end up losing power, and we'll go stay at uh, Blair's aunt and uncle's house. And it's awesome. They live in St. John's County where they actually put the electrical wires underneath the ground. Brilliant. All right. God bless them. So she never loses power, so she's an amazing cook. She overfeeds us for a couple days. She takes care of our son. I get to sleep in. She never loses power. It's like going to a Holiday Inn, okay? It's, it's awesome. It's like a mini vacation, all right? But, so we throw these hurricane parties to wait out the storm, and the second thing that happens is all the Yankees that moved from up north that came down here buy cases and cases and cases and cases of water. All of a sudden, people who lived off of two Cokes a day need a case of water to survive for 72 hours without electricity. See, the, the two soda survivors all of a sudden see a, a very real desire and need for water. Children also have a deep need for water right before bed, right? See, Judah thinks he's the Sahara Desert before it's bedtime. He has to have a glass of water right before he gets into bed, or he believes he's just not going to make it through the night. Okay? This might have to do with just not wanting to go to bed, But you get the idea. See, these people at the Festival of Shelters understand their need for water because their ancestors spent 40 years in the desert depending on the miracles of God to receive water. That's why Jesus is telling them all, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. It's a pretty big deal. See, J.C. Ryle said, it has been said that there are some passages in Scripture which deserve to be printed in gold letters. 
I believe these to be verses that fall under that category. Because in our time together, we're going to see the problems with humanity. We're going to see a remedy proposed. We're going to see a promise held out by our Savior. And we're going to see a lost and dying world not truly knowing who Jesus is. So the first thing we're going to see is a problem with humanity. Our Lord says, if anyone thirsts. Now, we have heard Jesus talk like this earlier in the Gospel of John when he was speaking to the woman at the well. That was a one-on-one conversation. Now he is shouting to hundreds, if not thousands of people, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Now, this is not literal, okay? He's not handing out bottles of Fiji water. You thirsty? Here, have a bottle of water. That's not what he's doing. This is a spiritual thirst, and everyone on this planet has a spiritual thirst. It's like the anxiety of our soul, the corruptness of our hearts. It's an understanding that something is wrong with this world and with humanity. And then he goes, if anyone, anyone, this is a promise open to everyone. So no one is too bad. No one is too good to be saved. No one is too guilty. No one is too miserable. No one is too bad. If they sense their soul is dry, if they sense it is dead and parched spiritually, they sense a need and they are simply to come and drink from our Savior. Understanding that the beginning of all true Christianity is to discover that we are guilty, empty, needy sinners. Until we know that we are lost, we are in no way to be saved. See, J.C. Ryle, again, said it best, the first step toward heaven is to be thoroughly convinced that we deserve hell. Jesus said in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they shall be satisfied. There is no clearer proof of the fall of man and the complete corruption of humanity than the indifference most people have about their souls. See, the Bible calls natural man blind, asleep, and dead, when so few can be found who are awake, alive, and thirsting for salvation. And the people hearing these words when Jesus said them would understand this meaning. They would have actually been taken back to the book of Isaiah. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Isaiah, but the first 39 chapters talk primarily about judgment. Judgment on Judah, judgment on Jerusalem, judgment on the surrounding nations. There's even certain chapters that prophesy judgment on the entire world. The judgment had to do with the wickedness of these nations. There are glimpses of hope in the first 39 chapters. However, however, ever, the book takes a turn in chapter 40. Instead of judgment, we find promises of salvation that dominate the remaining 26 chapters, which center on someone called the servant. And in chapter 52, spoiler alert, we find out the servant is God. Okay, he is described as high and lifted up, just as he was in 6.1 of Isaiah. In chapter 53, we find out that the servant will bring salvation by hanging on a tree, suffering and dying in the place of sinners. In chapter 54, we find out that the death and resurrection of the servant allows God to offer us the eternal covenant of peace, and we can live free from fear of judgment. If you read Isaiah's book, by the time you reach chapter 55, you will send, uh, he will send a, his servant, who is God, to save his people from judgment. And look at these two invitations side by side. John 7:37. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Then Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. See, Jesus is echoing the words of Isaiah here. 
He is inviting the dying to come to him for life. Are you dying? I got news for you. We're all dying. I don't care how well you eat. I don't care how well you exercise. We are all going to die one day. Unless the good Lord comes before that day. So what can be done about it? Well, Jesus invites the dying to come to him. We do not have to taste death because of what Jesus did for us on that tree. We can take our last breath on earth, and our next one will be in eternity with the Lord. So to be absent from the body is to be in presence with the Lord. Or Paul puts it this way, to die is gain for the believer. What an invitation the Lord gives us, and it's to the whole world. The one in the desert with his strength fading, struggling to go on, hears the promise of the water, and he knows that his only hope, our only hope, is Jesus. And that is the remedy proposed. This is our second thing we need to see. Jesus is the remedy proposed. Jesus declares that he is the fountain of life. He didn't just say that. He stood up and cried that out as a declaration to everyone who could hear it. He is the only thing that can quench your soul's thirst. And you can try to satisfy your soul with other things. Some people try to find it in family and fill it with family. Family is a great thing. It will never satisfy you can try it with your career, your job. That is a terrible thing to try to fill your soul with. Because a week after you're gone, your job's going to be open for the next employee. You can fill it with a hobby. Football, hunting, fishing. Nothing wrong with these things, but they cannot quench your soul. I love football. It doesn't satisfy my soul. I mean, the Florida Gators are terrible right now. They give me heartburn. I've never been hunting. I always wanted to go. So if you're a hunter, come see me after the service. But I doubt it could satisfy my soul. Now, I love to fish. You get to go outdoors. It's calming. It's relaxing. You still get to kill something. It's like redneck yoga. All right? But it does, doesn't satisfy your soul's needs. Your soul has a God-shaped hole in it, and only God can fill it. And as much as you want to try to ignore it, as much as you want to try to forget about it, you can't. It's a longing from your very core that can only be satisfied in him. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, put it this way. Thirst is an insatiable longing after that which is one of the most essential supports of life. There is no reasoning with it, no forgetting it, no despising it, no overcoming it by stolic indifference. Thirst can be heard. The whole man must yield to its power. Even thus is it with that divine desire with the grace of God creates and regenerate man. Only Jesus himself can satisfy the cravings of a soul really aroused by the Holy Spirit. And how does Jesus let us quench our souls? By coming to him. Those simple words Jesus spoke, let him come to me, are few and very simple. Greek and Roman philosophers could not even settle this mighty question. How can man have peace with God? You have peace by pl placing your trust in Jesus. He is our mediator. He is our great substitute. We have peace by believing. To come to Christ is to believe in him, and to believe in him is to come. And he says to come to him all throughout scripture. Now this one I'm going to ask for audience participation, so be ready. Come to me, all who are weary laden, and I will give you. Hey, there we go. First, first service struggles with that one. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and. Y'all are rock stars. All right. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And at the end of Revelation, chapter, the last chapter, chapter 22, verse 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. 
And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desire take the water of life without price. One of the last verses in all of scripture is the gospel plea for your soul to stir you to Jesus. You have to realize you are thirsty and to drink the water of life. And maybe you're thinking, man, this sounds too good to be true. I'd love some water. I need life. But I don't have anything to offer Jesus. I don't deserve it, and I've got no way to get it. I got great news. It's freely given to all who would receive. See, Isaiah 55, 1 again says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. But then it goes on to say, And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. How can you buy if you have no money? Because it's already been paid by our Lord and Savior. It's without price because he paid the ultimate price on Calvary. Jesus doesn't want your money. Like, what are you going to do, give Jesus $20? Like, Jesus doesn't want anything you have to offer. We don't have anything to offer him. What can we offer him? He just wants you. He invites you to come empty-handed to him. And when you do, you'll never be empty-handed again. We have nothing, but God still wants us, so he invites us to come. Come empty-handed. Come with no money. Come with nothing. Come dying, but you must come. Come to me and drink. Notice that Jesus is calling for a response. Come and drink. One must take personal responsibility. Salvation is from God, but it is not one-sided. Jesus is not saying he will force any to come and drink. His only requirement is that you be thirsty, and sensing that thirst, you come to him. How does one drink of Jesus? Clearly in context, you must believe in Jesus. And once we have believed, meaning you've taken your first drink of Christ, so to speak, therefore, how do we continue to drink of the Lord? Jesus is the living word, represented in the written word. And as we read the word, we drink of Jesus. When we read it, it is not to be mechanical. It's not to check off a box. We read with faith and believing and receiving what we read. Remember that it begins with recognizing that you are thirsty. We admit our need. He meets our need. See, James Scooter, not that scooter that I normally say, but James Scooter, in his book, Living Water, recounted a story, and I want to share it with you. And it says, many years ago, a crew of Peruvian sailors were heading up the Amazon River when they happened upon an unusual sight. A Spanish ship was anchored off the coast, and all the sailors were stretched out weakly on the deck of the ship. As the Peruvians drew closer, they saw that the Spaniards were in terrible physical condition. They looked as if they were, on, they were one step away from death. Their lips parched and swollen. Here in this ship, these Spanish sailors were literally dying of thirst. Can we help, shouted the Peruvians. The Spaniards cried out, water, water, we need fresh water. The Peruvian sailors, surprised at this request, told them to lower their buckets and help themselves. The Spaniards, fearing that they'd been misunderstood, cried back, no, no, we need fresh water. Again, the Peruvians told the Spanish sailors to lower their buckets. Finally, the sailors did as the Peruvian sailors commanded, and when their buckets were brought up to the surface, they discovered fresh water. Little did they know that they were at the mouth of the freshwater Amazon River. All they had to do was take a drink, and their thirst would have been quenched. Jesus Christ offers living water to quench man's thirst spiritually. Man doesn't have to do anything but drink this water. 
Sadly, many will die thirsty because they do not know about Jesus Christ, the living water. It's our job to tell them, church. Remember the warning Jesus gave that Pastor Micah talked about last week. He said, some would seek him and not find him in John 7, 34. That sounds a whole lot like Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you don't find life before death, you can't find life after death. If you don't drink the water before you die, you won't have the chance afterward. See, we see a problem with humanity. We see that Jesus is the remedy, and now we see a promise held out by our Savior. In verse 39, he says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit appears quite frequently. The Spirit was at creation, hovering over the waters. It was the Holy Spirit who anointed the prophets, anointed the priest, and anointed the king. It was the Holy Spirit who changed the hearts of unbelievers in the Old Testament and made them the people of God. As it is today, so it was then. There was no regeneration, no salvation, apart from the operation and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was present in the Old Testament, but the anointing of the Spirit for power was limited to a few individuals, like Moses and Samson and Elijah. But I got really good news for you. If you are a Christian, you have received the Holy Spirit. You are fit to be used by God for the work of his kingdom. And Jesus is saying here that once he goes to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come and tabernacle in the believers. All right, he will dwell in us. See, God dwelled in the Old Testament in the tabernacle and in the temple. Jesus also dwelled or tabernacled with the people when he was on earth. We have the Holy Spirit tabernacling in us, dwelling in us. And all who come to Jesus by faith will find him with abundant satisfaction. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of living Christians who can testify to this truth. They have tasted peace, hope, comfort, and they would not exchange any of that for anything. They have found grace according to their need and strength according to their days. In themselves, in their hearts, and through others, they have dealt with disappointment. But they have never been disappointed in Jesus. There is also um, a second part for the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and it's not only that he works in us but he also works through us and that fulfillment will not be fully known until judgment day that day alone shall reveal the amount of good that every believer did from the very first day of conversion some do good while they live some by the words they speak like the apostles and the first preachers of the gospel some do good when they're dying like stephen or the thief on the cross. Some even do good long after they are dead and gone from this world in their writings. But in one way or another, Christians are to be a blessing to others. Whether it is by word or by deed, directly or indirectly, we are to leave a mark on others. The Bible tells us a faith without works is dead. What things are we doing in faith to, for the kingdom? Are we telling others about Jesus? If you are a Christian... You are a disciple of Christ. We are called to make disciples. The problem is we tend to be a stumbling block more than we tend to be a blessing, if we're being honest. You don't have to be a big theological conversationalist like Brother Dave and understand the meaning of life, but you can invite people to church, right? You don't have to know everything about the Bible, okay? We have the cure 
the remedy for where our soul finds its satisfaction. But we don't tell people who we know and love about that remedy. See, if you have a friend, a family member get diagnosed with cancer and you knew where to get the cure, you would beg them and beg them and beg them and plead with them and plead with them and beg them until they went and got the treatment they needed, right? We have something so much better than a cure from a disease. We have the remedy for life everlasting. And we have it through Jesus. You have to get your loved ones, your friends, your family to a place where their disease-infected hearts can have the cure. Do we see the need for our loved ones who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus in a real and personal way? Man, I pray that you do. I really pray that you do. Because better for a loved one to be upset with you for constantly inviting them to church than for them to spend an eternity in hell. See, the spirit-filled life is the dominant need of every believer. Unless we are filled with the spirit, we cannot get God's best. Neither can we prove ourselves able to give forth God's best. No wonder the Bible says be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, for those of you who come to me and drink, you will not only be satisfied, but you will also become a river of life to the world. And that happens seven and a half months after this event at a day of Pentecost. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing invitation to say not only will you have your soul totally satisfied forever with a water that will cause you to never thirst again, it will satisfy you forever, but your life will have eternal significance. Man, what an amazing invitation. That's why I believe this is the golden invitation of the Gospel of John. Rivers of water. Not reserved for super saints or some kind of reservoir, but belonging to all believers, all of whom become fountains that turn into rivers. What a promise that God has upheld. And the last thing we're going to look at that we see is a lost and dying world not truly knowing who Jesus is. How utterly useless is knowledge in religion if it is not accompanied by the grace in the heart we see that some of these men knew exactly where christ was to be born where the messiah was to be born they reference scripture he comes from the seed of david born of bethlehem and yet the eyes of their understanding were not right the messiah was standing right in front of them and they didn't receive they did not believe and they did not obey Understand there is value in knowing theology and doctrine. How can you know God if you don't know scripture and rightly apply? And quick side note, context is important. Okay, like quit, stop taking out verses of the Bible that don't mean what you want it to mean. All right, context is important. Read your Bibles and understand the context of the verses. It matters. I'm just saying. Anyways, all right, I'm just telling you, Scooter, listen up. However, it is not enough to know facts, theology, and doctrines of faith unless our hearts and lives are thoroughly influenced by what we know. Pastor Jerry Vines of downtown used to say, a lot of people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. They got the head knowledge. They don't have the heart knowledge. You can quote scripture. That's awesome. So can Satan. You know about God. Cool. So did the demons. They even believed and trembled, but they still remained demons. People don't even tremble anymore. It is very possible to know scripture and to quote scripture and quote theologians and know as much as you can about the Bible and God and remain dead in trespasses and sin. Heart knowledge is what matters. You can go to the best seminaries, you can listen to the best preachers, you can read the best commentaries, but heart knowledge is not something that can be taught. It's a gift from God. 
To become familiar with the throne of grace and the fountain of Christ's blood, you have to sit daily at the feet of Jesus and humbly learn from him. This is the highest degree of knowledge we can attain. See, these people thought that they knew, but they didn't know. These people had no idea that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. All they knew was that he had come to them from Galilee. So they scratched their heads and they ponder, is this the prophet Moses had prophesied about? Was he the Messiah? And understand that some of the first century Jews believed that the prophet and Messiah to be two different people. In Deuteronomy 18.15, we see that there will be a new prophet like Moses to come. In Acts 3, Peter tells us that Jesus was the prophet to come because he is the greater Moses. He fulfilled both roles. Okay? He is the new prophet and he is the Messiah. The people did not understand rightly who Jesus was. Some people thought he should be locked up. Some people thought that he was the Messiah to come, but no one did anything to him. Wasn't he supposed to be arrested? Where are the temple officers? They had been sent to arrest Jesus. But when they came to the temple and came forward to grab him, they realized that Jesus spoke like no one they had ever heard before. That statement is more profoundly true than those officers could have realized. For no one in history has been fully God and fully man and able to speak with the infinite knowledge and authority of God himself. They heard the authority in Jesus' teachings and found themselves unable to act. So they go to the Pharisees. Oh, those Pharisees. These are some arrogant folks. They asked the officers if they were deceived. They referred to the crowd uh, in the Greek as abhorrence or ignoramuses. If you've ever uh, been to Cracker Barrel and played the little triangle game with the T's, if you get five or more of those T's still in the triangle, you too are an ignoramus. It means an uneducated masses. They were listening to Jesus. They were ignoramuses for listening to him. They were ignorant of the law of God because it clearly showed them, according to them, that Jesus could not be the Messiah. Then they accused Nicodemus of being ignorant. Nicodemus and Brother Dave did a fantastic job talking about him in greater detail back in June. If you haven't heard it, I would encourage you to go back on, you can listen to it on podcast or on YouTube, um, but give it a listen. But it says, Nicodemus says to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And the arrogant Pharisees replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now you remember back in chapter 146, right? No? Okay. Let me remind you. Okay. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, these people had nothing but scorn for Galilee and the region of Galilee. They had nothing but contempt for these people. Who are these people? Well, they're the skeptics. They're the cynics. These are the ones who repeatedly, constantly mocked Jesus. They were the Pharisees, the scribes, the rabbis, the religious leaders. It's a statement of mockery from the religious of the time period. Galilee had a reputation for being backwards, being sort of influenced by the Gentile world. Nothing important happened there, so leaders assumed that Jesus was born in Galilee and say, surely you don't think the Messiah is coming out of Nazareth or of Galilee. And then they quote scripture. They quote Micah 5.2, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David? So they proceeded in their mockery. Of course the Messiah can't come from Galilee because he has to come from Bethlehem. And he has to be in David's line or he would not have the right to the throne. Now we all know the obvious response. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
That's why the New Testament makes such a clear historical record about his birth in Bethlehem. He was of the line of David. His father was in David's line, and his mother was in David's line. His father's genealogy starts in the book of Matthew, his mother's genealogy in Luke. They could have checked the temple records. They could have found his birthplace to be Bethlehem, and they would have known his lineage was from David on both sides of his family. Willful ignorance on the part of the religious, and they mock Nicodemus with the accusation of being for Galilee because they know the Messiah can't be from there. There are some people who are in the process of believing that they're going to come to know Jesus one day. And I believe, like Brother Dave, that Nicodemus was in the process of coming to know the truth of who Jesus really is. He was a member of this Sanhedrin, this elite ruling body, but he had spent some time with Jesus. Remember in John 3, he came to Jesus by night, talked about the new birth, entering the kingdom of God. Jesus gives him John 3, 16, and we haven't heard anything about Nicodemus since then. Okay, so where has he been the last couple of years? He's been in the process of figuring out who Jesus is. There's a genuine search for the truth, and so he speaks up. Our law doesn't judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? He wants to defend Jesus. He doesn't want this to happen. He's processed enough about who Jesus is to know it's not right just to kill him. I don't know where he is in his own soul at this moment. He's not going to declare himself to be a believer. But he's going to hold them to the integrity of their own laws. You cannot arrest and execute a man until he's had a trial. You can't do that. So he defends Jesus in his legal way. Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Well, they got a little bit of selective history there, don't they? That's revisionist. Did they forget Jonah? Did they forget Nahum? Did they forget Hosea? All of whom came from Galilee. But again, this is all selective data that they're throwing around here. Again, I don't know Nicodemus' heart in these verses. But I believe by the time John 19 comes around, I do believe Nicodemus knows that Jesus is the Messiah who takes away the sins of the world and he puts his trust in him. If you rightly see who Jesus is, you know. You know he is fully God and he is fully man. You come to understand that all of scripture points to Jesus. He is the Messiah that has taken away the sins of the world. And if you trust in him, that what he did on the cross counts for you as well. And you don't have to fully understand to fully believe. And if you feel your soul is crying out for living water, don't ignore it. Come to Jesus. We're wrapping up our time here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and invite the, the praise team to, to come on up. And I'll get Morgan to start tickling those ivories when she does. What, what I don't want y'all to do, church, don't listen to Oprah. Oprah thinks that all roads lead to heaven. There is only one way. We are not all climbing the same mountain and it all leads to God. There is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. You cannot be good enough to get to God. The Bible says that none do good, no, not one. Outside of Jesus, we cannot be in relationship with God. You have to come to Jesus and drink living water. You must respond to his invitation. Some people won't believe. Some people reject. Some people remain in limbo, but some people are in process, aren't they? And that was what Nicodemus was, honestly seeking the Lord. 
And God says, if you seek me with all your whole heart, you'll find me. What will you do with this man, Jesus? That's the most important question you're ever going to be asked, church. What will you do with Jesus? I beg to you, come to him. Come to him. You don't have to know everything. I pray during this invitation that you walk forward and you place your trust in him. You don't have to fully understand to fully believe. You don't have to come along, walk with a friend, walk with a family member, but don't let fear paralyze you from going forward in your walk with the Lord. Let today be your first step of obedience. Stand with me as we pray. Lord, I just thank you. Lord, I thank you for your truth, for its consistency, its power, its clarity, its very life, Lord. Your word gives life. Thank you for the wonderful privilege of speaking your words today, Lord, of being able to read your holy scriptures, to being able to pray to you. And I pray that you'll work in every heart here. Thank you for those who actively seek you in relationship. I pray for those who are confused or lost, who don't know you. I pray that broken hearts are shattered by you because it says that your word is a hammer. I pray for those who are starting to seek you and who you are. I pray if anyone in here has recognized their need for you, that they will not sit idly by and they will trust in their hearts and confess with their mouth that you are Lord. We all have to make the final decision. What will I do with you, Lord? May we make it by believing in you, confessing you as Lord and Savior, receiving you and becoming a child of God. Lord, may you be glorified. Finish this time where we know you have the final say. Amen. Show!
pray it has been good to be in this place of worship. Thank you, Pastor Jordan, for faithfully just bringing that word to us. And we just sang these words. We sang, just went blank all of a sudden. He whispered to us, sure, I found thee thou art mine. I've never heard a sweeter voice. For those of us who have come to trust him, who understand who he is, who understand what he offers to us, there is no sweeter voice than his. But it is sad that there are still some who hear his voice, and to them it's mean, and it's hateful, and how dare he. But for us who have found in him our life, there is no sweeter voice. No sweeter voice than that. And may we daily call upon him, and may we daily, as we just sang, retrace all that he has done in our lives. He is so good to us. Remember, next week we are having a combined service at 1030. No life groups. We are gathering here together. And uh, just for one service and one big announcement at the end. So please don't miss that. We're going to recite our verse. You heard it last week. You heard it today. Um, Our verse for the week. And let's say it together. And we'll say the reference at the end. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Isaiah 55, 6. And we are dismissed.